right, we're going to be in Philippians this morning. Um, just a few items to review here as we get going. First of all, Paul is writing this letter from prison, okay? And he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi because he loves them, loves them deeply. And so he's writing this letter to instruct them, to encourage them, ultimately so that they would know joy. They would have joy deep within them. And the basis that he's given for that joy, for pursuing that joy, is this picture of Jesus as the servant king. So this is the foundational picture for the letter, but we could say even for the Bible. Jesus as the servant king, seeing him for who he is, is the way in which we pursue joy. And so Paul, in all of this, is seeking true life for the church in Philippi. And in this, to find true life, he's saying, pursue Jesus, forsake everything else. Leave everything else behind. And he's going to bang that drum again this morning for us in the verses we're looking looking at. So, this morning we're going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. And so, um, let me pray for us as we get going this morning. God, thank you for this letter. I pray that this morning, wherever we're at, that we would be able to be instructed by these words and encouraged by them. So would you please do a profound work in our hearts as we gather, and despite whatever we're feeling, whatever we're going through, walking through in life, I pray that this would be a present, helpful word for us. So God, would you build our faith in the gospel and encourage us this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Alright, Philippians 3.1 Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Okay, at this point, it may seem almost comical to us how insistent Paul is on emphasizing joy. He, again, here, is giving the admonition to rejoice in the Lord. It's almost as though he's saying, for those in the back, for those who haven't heard, who weren't paying attention the first however many times, rejoice in Jesus. And notice that the rejoice is contingent on one thing, right? It's connected to being in Jesus. So it's not just this command, be happy, rejoice. He's also reminding us where that comes from. It comes from us being in Jesus. And then he essentially admits, I know I keep saying the same thing to you as he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. So Paul isn't concerned about looking silly. He's not concerned about accusations of laziness because he's saying the same thing. He is convinced of the idea the gospel, Jesus, will lead people into joy. And so he's going to keep saying the same thing. He's not done saying this. He's going to come back to this again later in the letter. But Paul includes a further comment here at the end of this verse that's insightful. He says, it is safe for you regarding his repeated instruction to rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, I'm repeating this idea because you need to hear it again. You need to heed this 
every single day. You need to keep being reminded of this. Paul knows humanity's tendency to forget things, to chase after new, shiny things, to see the squirrel running across the yard, right, and be infatuated, distracted by that. And so he is calling the church in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord because he knows it's safe for them. This verse has actually been really instrumental for me in how I carry out my role as a pastor, how I lead Center Church. It's really helped me to simplify a lot of what I do in ministry. I am convinced of my calling to preach the gospel and to do that repeatedly, to do that clearly, to do that passionately, to do it simply. And I know I run the risk of being labeled as kind of a simpleton. I know that people at times will say, I've heard this, or this is boring. Some people want to graduate to other theological topics, deeper, more heady parts of the Bible. I joke that the gospel is kind of my one-hit wonder. But the big reason I preach the gospel over and over, one of the big reasons is because it is safe for you. It is safe for me as well. It is what you need to hear. It's what I need to hear over and over, week in, week out, day in, day out. It is the heart of the Christian faith. It centralizes Jesus, allows us to be laser-focused on the thing that is most important, on the person that is most important, and that is Jesus. And it is the only road that leads to our joy in any lasting manner. So we're going to keep saying the same thing, hopefully say it in different ways, but say the gospel, call ourselves to believing the gospel over and over because it's safe for us and because it leads to our joy. Okay, verses 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So after this first reminder that Paul gives at the beginning in verse 1, this may seem maybe a bit abrupt, maybe a bit confusing where he goes. So I want to provide just a little bit of context for us here. There was a group of Jewish teachers that Paul would call false teachers. They were known as Judaizers. And they held the view that in order for people to become a Christian, they must first become a Jew. They needed to obey the law. They needed to obey the Ten Commandments. And in this case, they needed to get circumcised. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a bit. But essentially, what they would say is that they needed to earn their salvation. That they needed to earn grace. And if you know anything about grace, this is a foolish thought because grace is unearned. You can't earn it. It's a gift that's given to you. And these same people, the Judaizers, viewed Gentiles or non-Jewish people as unclean. And that's why they refer to them as dogs. Because dogs in that day were not cute, cuddly animals that we allowed, that they allowed to kind of roam around our houses. They were viewed as nasty in that day, unclean animals. 
And Jewish people mocked Gentiles by calling them dogs. But Paul, what he's doing here is he's flipping the script. He's calling these false teachers dogs or unclean because what they're doing is turning the gospel into Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus Ten Commandments. Jesus plus something else. They're saying people have to believe in Jesus and then be circumcised. And Paul is saying, watch out for people who teach this or who teach similar things to this because they are promoting not the gospel but anti-gospel teachings. So these false teachers taught that circumcision needed to occur and that that would help save someone. But Paul, what he says, if that's the reason people are doing it, it's simply just mutilating the flesh. That's all they're doing. Now, the tendency to add conditional requirements for salvation is no less a problem today than it was a problem in Paul's day. Some of you may have grown up in environments where you had to like, dress a certain way when you went to church. Or maybe like alcohol was a thing that it was a no-go in your household or in your church context. Some folks like to add adjectives to legitimize or maybe up the ante on their Christianity. So, and this can be many things. This could be, I'm a charismatic Christian, or I'm a Baptist Christian, or I'm, I'm a spirit-filled Christian. There's tons of adjectives that we might give to kind of clarify what kind of a Christian we are. Today we're told that no God-fearing Christian can vote for either a Republican or a Democrat, right? Like both sides are saying you can't be an actual Christian and vote for the other side. Now I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about how we live. It does. But our tendency to create lists of rules that we need to follow to keep our salvation is just something that we do. We all have this tendency. But note this. When we break our rules, whatever our unwritten list might be, or maybe it's written for us, and things go bad in life, what we oftentimes tend to do is we view God in a certain way. We view God as becoming mad at us, crossing his arms. He's got the red pen, making red check marks on us. And what this tends towards then is we begin to wonder, like, am I saved? Do I have salvation? Did anything change in my relationship with God? And, and this is what happens. When we create the list, we break the rules on the list, it creates this dynamic where we begin to wonder and doubt. People who understand the gospel and who believe it worship Jesus based on his work for us. Glory in Jesus. We don't glory in our work that we do for Jesus. We glory in Jesus' work for us. We understand that by his spirit that he never forsakes us, even when we regularly might forsake him. True gospel belief puts, as Paul says here, No confidence in the flesh. None whatsoever. All of our confidence is in Jesus. And this is why Paul says, we are the circumcision. Meaning, it's those whose hearts are severed from the things of this world. 
Okay? He's not talking about a ritual. He's not talking about a medical procedure here. Galatians 6.15, and this is Paul writing in Galatians, he says this really clearly. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Okay? So there's this physical act of circumcision that Jews would do with male, young male boys, right? And Paul's saying that counts for nothing whatsoever as it pertains to salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. And Paul is saying that anyone who teach differently than that is a dog. They're a false teacher. And they are downright evil. Okay, verses 4 through 6. Let's read these. So he's talking about put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay, so these verses are maybe a bit odd. At first glance, when we read this, it almost seems as though maybe Paul is being hypocritical here. Isn't he doing the exact thing he said not to do? He just told us to glory or to boast in Jesus, but now he seems to be doing the opposite. What Paul's doing here, though, is he's countering those false teachers who are trying to emphasize personal religious works in addition to what Jesus has done. And so he's going to play their game with them here a little bit. And he, what he wants to do is he wants to prove their insufficiency from a work standpoint, from a human standpoint. standpoint. So basically, Paul is telling his opponents, he's saying, I have more reason than you to put trust in my flesh. And I am the one saying, don't trust in any of those things. So first, Paul speaks here. I want to go through this list, okay? And, and just look at each of these things that he's saying. So first, he's talking about rituals. He's talking about this fact that he was circumcised in the way prescribed. So you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, and this was prescribed for young males, in, uh, young Jewish males, that they would be circumcised on the eighth day, okay? And this would mark them out as Jewish boys. So this has been the practice of Jewish people as a way to mark them as God's covenant people for God since the very beginning. But Paul is stating doing that is no reason for boasting. Paul then warns of hoping in one's ethnicity as he mentions his heritage as an Israelite. Okay? And he's saying... Just the fact, the fact that I am uh, an Israelite means there's no reason for boasting in that either. So as Jewish people would look at Gentiles, call them dogs, call them whatever, unclean, far from God, saying there's no reason to boast in my ethnicity either. Next, Paul addresses his connection to the tribe of Benjamin. So there's a number of reasons why people would esteem the tribe of Benjamin. One of them would be this was the, the land area where Jerusalem was. Okay, so this is where everyone would gather for worship, kind of the central part of Israel life 
was in Jerusalem. And so this was one reason why, being from the, the tribe of Benjamin, people would say uh, they would aspire for that or they would esteem that idea. Paul then addresses his connection to Hebrew tradition. So he speaks the language, okay, while also speaking the language, maybe the common language of that day, speaking fluent Greek as well. He knows and is engaged in Hebrew culture. He's invested in it. He's knowledgeable about it. And how often today do we do this as well, right? We, We look at traditions. I'm not saying traditions are a bad thing, but when traditions is what we base our salvation on, that that's not a good thing. Casey and I felt this when we were getting married in our own families, whether this was tongue-in-cheek or not. Uh, Both of our families asked questions about the person that we started dating, and as we were talking about getting married, that they asked Casey's, or Casey's family asked her, like, is is he a tongue talker? Like, does he speak in tongues? Like, does he do this thing? And, and my family was like, well, does she have any Swedish blood in her? And so, like, like our families had, like, these traditions that they cared about, maybe in lesser degrees in some things, but they cared about these realities. And many people prioritize cultural traditions over the primacy of the gospel. And Paul's saying that it's fine to be a Hebrew, But the point in all things, in this especially, is to be fixated on the ultimate Hebrew, who is Jesus himself. Paul then emphasizes his adherence to the law as a Pharisee. So Pharisees were known to observe the law in an impeccable manner, okay? They knew the law better than others. They kept the law better than others. So much so that they not only keep the laws that God gave, but then they would go on and they would add additional laws. Like, God's laws weren't enough. They would add additional laws so that they could go above and beyond. Many people in our day think the road to heaven is all about being a good person. You, You hear this all the time. I think we slip into thinking this as well from time to time. And though I'm not going to advocate for immorality, being a moral person won't save anyone. Being a good person gets nobody to heaven. Paul then speaks to how zealous he was for protecting the laws or the tradition of Israel. So he persecuted those who did not hold to an acceptable standard, okay? Those who did not keep the law. The book of Acts in the New Testament speaks to how Paul carried out violence towards people. He persecuted people who did not keep the law, who were not following the Jewish faith in a way that he he felt was acceptable. And his zeal would classify him as an extremist as it pertains to Old Testament law. Paul then concludes this section. He says, As to righteousness under the law, that he is blameless. When he's stating this, he's not saying that he possesses sinless perfection. That's not what he's saying. It's a statement about how he obeyed the law impeccably. That he would, take, he would match himself up against anyone in terms of law obedience, and he would say, I've got you beat. If you're here, I'm here. He's going to top anybody. So he wants his readers 
and the false teachers to understand he can stand up to and over anyone in regard to the pursuit of good works. As it pertains to religious morality, if anyone has reason for confidence in how they lived, Paul is saying, I have more. And I will lay down my track record right here, right now, against anybody. And I think it's really easy to read this section and think Paul is, maybe he's just a bit arrogant. Maybe he is a bit conceited. Maybe it questions, it causes us to question his role as the one writing this book or as a leader in the church. But he's writing all of this as a setup to what he is about to say in the remaining verses. So let me read these verses and then we'll work through these. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so... Everything Paul was saying in those preceding verses was to set this up. We, we never read the Bible in a vacuum, right? Like, but what, whatever reading the Bible always has context, and that's what's going on here. So Paul is saying here, whatever gain I had, okay, and notice he's talking past tense here. So whatever gain that I did have before, I count it as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So very clearly, Paul wants his readers to understand the reality of loss in the Christian life. The Christian life entails loss. It is a life of loss. Following Jesus will require us to lose our self-importance to let go of whatever accomplishments we've, that we're, we're proud of, or at least understand that anything that we do accomplish is a product of God's kindness to us. Anything that we accomplish is God's grace to us. It's not happening if he's not showing kindness, enabling these things in some way. This goes along with this idea that we try to say every so often that what we do here is not about you. It's for you, but it's not about you. So get over yourself, right? And, and that's essentially what Paul is saying here as well. Now, this is hard. If we actually take this to heart, because we all have dreams, pursuits, right? We all have stuff. And to think about setting that aside, the, the things that we maybe have worked years for, 
that we've sacrificed for, to say, I'm going to set it all aside, that's hard. It can cause fear to rise up in us. What if I don't have this thing anymore? But what Paul is saying here is that loss is actually gain. Loss is actually gain. As he stated in chapter 1, to die is gain. We hear a consistent message here as well. And the foundation of the gain is Jesus. Paul is willing to let go of anything that he previously deemed worthwhile because of one thing. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He has had such a profound experience with Jesus, with the gift of grace that Jesus has extended to him, that he is willing to let go of everything in his life, everything that his life has been built on. And there was a lot there. He had risen through the ranks in Jewish culture. He had position, he had authority, he had power, he had a following. And he's saying, I'm going to let all of that go. But not only that, he's not saying I'm, I'm willing to lose all of that, but he's openly acknowledging that this new way of living, of following Jesus, is going to result in and will continue to entail suffering. So it's not just letting go of good things, it's also inviting these really hard realities as well. It's remarkable. Something profound has to happen inside of a person to get to that point. To say all these good things that I treasure, that I'm willing to be open-handed about them, with them, and let them go. And not only that, but I'll, I'll be willing to suffer for this new way of life as well. In some ways, I would hope that that piques our interest. Like, what does Paul have? If we don't feel that way, what does Paul have? What am I missing out on? What am I not experiencing? And I think this communicates, or I don't think, this communicates two things. It, it communicates many other things, but I want to highlight two things that this communicates. First of all, it communicates the insufficiency of anything that is not Jesus. There is nothing in this world that will satisfy you. I make this statement, I think, regularly. There is nothing in this world that will satisfy you. I keep making this statement because it's safe for us. Because it will lead to our joy. And I keep making this statement because I think this statement goes over our heads a lot of times. In one ear, out the other. There is nothing in this world that will satisfy us. We have to be convinced of this. Nothing, no one in this world that will ultimately satisfy us. I'm not saying that satisfaction is impossible. Obviously, we all have things that we do, we enjoy, that give us satisfaction. But I'm saying in a lasting manner. Nothing will provide that for us. Everything in this world is a counterfeit God. 
Everything is a counterfeit God. There are good things to be enjoyed, but they are intended to move us to worship Jesus. Hobbies, pursuits, dreams, all of those things need to be tempered. And Paul, the way he talks about this here, is intended to grab our attention. Because he actually uses really strong language here. Maybe coarse language we could say, in the way that he talks about this. In suffering the loss of all things, Paul doesn't look back fondly on what he has lost, but he looks back on those things and he calls them here rubbish. What this actually means kind of gets lost in translation. This is a really tame translation. So the Greek word here actually means excrement. Dung. Crap. I'll stop right there, okay? I'm not going to go any further. Paul looks at everything that he has lost. He looks at the list of things he was just mentioning, all these things that he can point to and say, I have more reasons for confidence in the flesh. He looks at all of that and he says, that's dog poop. It's worthless. Paul's saying everything outside of Jesus is insufficient. And this leads us to the second reality. Jesus is supremely sufficient. Paul wants us to know, and he's going to keep saying this over and over and over, there is nothing, no one like Jesus. If you don't see it, if you don't feel it, if you don't believe it, he's imploring us to understand there's more for us. That in some way we are being fooled. We're missing out. There's so much more of Jesus for us to see and know and experience and enjoy. Think about this for a moment. Paul has given his life to following Jesus, to teaching Jesus. He has spent years in prison. Okay, so think about how he spent his time. He has had tons of time to think about Jesus. And to think more about Jesus. And this is what he has done. Spent tons of hours thinking about him. And what does he want? All he wants is more Jesus. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. It's a well that won't dry up. Paul wants his readers to know there's something about Jesus that will cause our hearts to explode with joy, to never run out of, run dry of hope. Paul is pounding us with Jesus here because he knows and he has experienced that Jesus is the answer. And what we all need is more Jesus. And in this, then, he talks about righteousness and the law. He wants us to know what true righteousness is and where it is found. It's only found in Jesus. He wants us to stop trying to create forms of righteousness by being good people or following a list of rules. Whether they're a religious list of rules or your own to-do list or it's what our culture tells us we need to do to be happy, we cannot create righteousness. And this fact undergirds our hope, our joy, our freedom, 
We cannot create righteousness. We need Jesus. He alone is our true righteousness. And Paul's really clear here on how we access righteousness. We access it by faith. Through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So notice really clear, it's not by doing. It's by being. Resting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. This is how we are made right. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Not through the law. Not through lists of rules. Not through obedience. Simply by faith. Okay, two, uh, two points of gospel application I want to wind us down with here as, as we wrap up. First of all, I want to drive home this fact that Jesus, and, and I should say only Jesus, possesses surpassing worth. So w- whether you hear this statement as really ordinary, like it's the same thing as like 2 plus 2 equals 4, Like, you hear Jesus possesses surpassing worth in that way. Or, you hear it in such a way like part of you wants to exclaim amen to that. No matter how we interact with this statement, this is true. Jesus possesses surpassing worth. Whether you feel it or not, there is no more real reality than this. Paul continues to point to Jesus and center everything on him because he has powerfully encountered Jesus. And he wants that for you. He wants you to experience this as well so that you would get to the point and say, Jesus possesses surpassing worth. And and then your life reflects this. Like himself, he wants us to be blinded by the blinding goodness of Jesus' light so that we can begin to see Jesus for who he really is. Like himself, he wants us to be convinced that each of us is the chief of sinners, that we are the worst sinner, so that Jesus' sacrificial love would mean something to us. Paul says that he's the chief of sinners. He can say that about himself because he knows his heart. And this is true for all of us. I am the chief of sinners. I can't look at you and say you are because I don't know your heart in the same way I know my heart. But you can say you're the chief of sinners. And and in that, as you see the depth of sin in your own heart, this can help to be a mirror to encourage you to see the gift of sacrificial love, the goodness of Jesus' sacrificial love, that he had to do what he did on the cross for your sin, because you are the chief of sinner. I am the chief of sinner. What causes people to give up lucrative corporate jobs to serve Jesus in obscurity? What causes someone to do that? What causes people to give sacrificially to their churches or to missionaries with no recognition whatsoever? What causes people to take risks for Jesus and be willing to be known as weird 
so that others might know Jesus' love for them? What causes people to leave comfort and go to a foreign country and tell others about Jesus? The wealth that we aspire after, the dreams that we hope to fulfill someday, our longing to be recognized by others, our acts of religious duty, our children becoming something we never were, or having ideal situations or opportunities to grow up in, us being a stellar mom or dad or friend or spouse or employee or keeping a pristine yard or home or getting the house that you've always yearned for or accomplishing your greatest greatest accomplishment. All of these things are things that we can pile up together and Paul is going to come at us and say, are we willing to consider it all loss for the sake of Jesus, knowing that he possesses surpassing worth. This really challenges us because in, in the American way of thinking, because many of us have been taught to consume, right? To get more. And, and this is telling us the more you have, means the more you have to lose, to die to. Jesus is sufficient. He is what you want. Though culture will tell us there's all these other things that you want, Jesus is ultimately what you want, even when you feel like you don't want Jesus. Those urges, those groanings deep inside of you are emanating from a place, from a reality in you that yearns for your creator, that yearns for Jesus. He is the one who will satisfy you. He is the one who compels joy in your heart. He is the one who saves you. So preach this to yourselves. Preach this to one another. Preach this to your roommates, to your children. Preach this over and over Only Jesus possesses surpassing worth. Secondly, I want us to hear clearly where confidence comes from. Paul is telling us it only comes from Jesus. Our world is filled with false teachers, with false gospels that are going to tell us that confidence comes from this thing, this routine this regimen, this way of living, this way of eating, this whatever, this hobby, you name it. This is where confidence comes from. Paul is warning the church in Philippi and us to watch out because he knows we are bombarded with untrue messages. Whether it's on our favorite shows, or it's on the nightly news, or it's things we encounter in songs or movies, or on social media, maybe in our classrooms at school, at the gym, or at our jobs, everywhere. We could say even so-called Christian settings. We are confronted with calls to trust in ourselves, to trust in the things of this world, to put confidence in the flesh. So we're told, accumulate, hoard, stash, gain, 
And Jesus and Paul is confronting that. They're saying, if we should seek to grow or accumulate anything, it's our faith in Jesus. This is how our standing before God is made right. Not through the law. Not through following rules. But through faith. Paul is saying, even the good things we do amount to nothing. And this aligns with biblical ideas like, even our good deeds are dirty. Even our good deeds need to be repented of. It's even the good things that we do that cause us to be separated from God. The idea is we think we can get closer to God by our right behavior. And the Bible says never. We can never get closer to God by good actions. All of that counts for nothing. What counts is Jesus. His perfect initiating love. And so the invitation is to come to him, to trust in him, to to not just believe intellectually or think intellectually, but to believe in every part of us that Jesus is where our confidence comes from. There is no confidence to be found in you obeying the law impeccably. It counts for nothing. It's all loss. So, so in this, as we pursue confidence, I, I just want to encourage us, don't be thrown off by what you think you might lose. Satan wants to deceive us. He wants to tell us, will whisper to us, it's not worth it. Don't give that thing up. Whatever it is for you, and it's going to look differently for all of us, whatever it is for you, it's not going to last. It's going to rot. It's going to rust. It's going to break. It's going to die. But not Jesus. He has overcome. He is enough. He's enough. So heed the warning. Suffer loss. And revel in Jesus. That is where your confidence is found.